Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord, and we are so blessed that you have adopted us into your family, not because of our good works, but Lord, because of your grace and your mercy. And Lord, as we go to your word this morning and we just look at the example of how we can grow through difficult circumstances and how we can grow through the trials that come into our lives, and Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts and just teach us, Lord, that when difficulties come, that that you are there, that you're interceding on our behalf, and that you love us so very much. Lord, may you be our teacher this morning. May we be receptive to your word. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Last week in John chapter 5, the second half, the title of the message was Like Father, Like Son. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into it, but I just wanted to say that Jesus had one single focus when he was on earth. He had one single passion, one single focus, one single heart. And what was the heart and the, and the passion of Jesus Christ? It was to do the will of the Father. You know, it says in the Word that my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. He made Himself equal with God, and the Jews wanted to just kill our Savior because He made Himself so clearly equal with God. We've talked repeatedly about John. The emphasis on John is the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? And as God, we see that He desired to do the will of the Father. And we can learn from our Savior in every aspect of life, but we can learn in His, in his relationship with the Father. He was a reflection of the Father. He was dependent on the Father. He was secure in the Father. He was the only path to the Father. He was submitted to the Father when He said, Not my will, but Thy will be done. And He was witnessed of by the Father who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You want to be like Jesus Christ? You want to be a true Christian? A follower of Christ? Then our focus, our heart, our passion should be the same as His heart and His focus and His passion, which is above all else, to do the will of the Father. So that's what we saw last week. And the way that it reflects in our lives is that we too, just like He was a reflection of the Father, we should again, like I said last week, be the moon and be a reflection of the sun. We should be an example of Christ to the world around us. We should remain desperate for God. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how much of the Bible you know or how much money you have in your bank account or how uh, you know, intelligent you are or how many degrees you have by your name or any of those kinds of things. We must always remain desperate for God. Amen? Because without Him, we can do, what does the Bible say? Nothing. So I don't care how smart we are, we need to be desperate for Him, just as Jesus was. We need to remember that our security is in Him, not in our 401k plan or our job. You know, if your security is in anything you can lose, you have no security. But our security, if you're a Christian, is in something we cannot ever lose. It's in Jesus Christ. We are to point people to Jesus the way that Jesus pointed people to the Father. We're to submit in every aspect of our lives to Him. And we are to seek only God's approval, not the approval of men. So this morning, we're going to move on to John chapter 6. And you know what? In John, there's, between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, there's a great deal of time that's, that's not talked about. Between John 5 and John 6, depending on which feast is mentioned in John 5, it's been anywhere from six months to a year later. And during that time, here's some of the things that had happened. Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount. 
He had healed many people. He healed the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law. He had calmed the storm while while that was the time when he was asleep in the boat and the apostles came to him. He had healed the demon-possessed men. He had healed the paralytic, the blind man, the mute, and the man with a withered hand. He had also taught many parables. And it's important that we understand that all that had happened because it helps us give a better context of John 6 when it says in verse 1, after these things. So after what things? After all these miraculous works that Jesus had done, we come to John chapter 6. At this point in John 6, again, I titled the message today, Growing Through Difficult Circumstances and Trials. Growing through times of difficulty in your life. You know, it says in in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. It doesn't say if, it says when. Amen? And a lot of people think that Christianity is a cruise ship to heaven. But the reality is that when you fall in love with the Lord, there are going to be storms in your life. We're going to look at one of those this morning and how it applies to each one of us. But at this point in John 6, Jesus is at the high point of his popularity. Crowds were gathering everywhere he went. Multitudes were following him everywhere he went. And we're going to see over the next two weeks that the miracles of Jesus will continue to draw these crowds, but his words will come to make the crowd disappear. People are going to come for the miracles. They're going to come because they want to see a magician. They're going to come because they want to see you know, a, a physician heal people. But they don't want a Savior and they certainly don't want a Lord. What they want is a physician or they want a magician. And a lot of people come to God that very same way today. They come to God wanting a magic act performed. You know, Lord, I've got this going, and you know, could you rain down a little mat? Could you throw something down and take care of my needs? And the people came to Christ very much the same way several thousand years ago. And so, 2,000 years ago. So we see here that feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water, we're going to see again our Lord minister to people out of compassion. And we'll also see the testing of the faith of the apostles. So let's begin in verse 1. As Jesus feeds the 5,000, and I entitled this section, Growing Through Circumstances. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this is interesting because this miracle appears in all four Gospels. And not very many of them do, but this one is in all four Gospels because of the magnitude of this miracle. In Mark's account, we see that Jesus took his disciples away to a deserted place where they could rest and recover. Jesus at this point is totally physically exhausted. While he is 100% God, he also took on 100% humanity. And because he was 100% human, he got hungry, and he got tired, and he grew weary. Those things happened because he had a physical body. And you know what, can you imagine being Jesus and 24-7 people are pressing in on you, wanting to be healed and wanting to see a magic act and wanting to see that physician and he was never left alone and finally he grows weary. And it says in Mark's account that he took his disciples away and they went into a deserted place where they could rest. And so that's what happened basically here with verse 1. And yet the needs of the multitude are still going to touch his heart. Look at verse 2. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. The people so long to be with Jesus, again, if you look at Matthew's account, that when Jesus got in the boat and went to the other side, that it was, it's a four mile, he went four miles across, roughly, four or five miles across, roughly, depending on which angle he went at. And the people ran around the lake so fast that when the boat got there, they were waiting for him. Do you think the people were excited to see Jesus? And, you know, it's amazing to me, you know, you know for us, sometimes it's a bummer if it's like raining outside to go to church. Well, it's raining. 
you know, get in our, air, in our car and turn our heater on and drive over here, but, you know, I might have to get my umbrella out, I'll just stay home. And here these people are, they were excited about seeing Jesus, amen? I mean, they were running to the other side. Now, sadly, their motives were not right, and their hearts were not in the right place, but they would not leave our Savior alone. They were continually coming to Him. And I'll tell you what, I wish that there was more people like that today who had a burden for the Lord. Even if they initially came with the wrong motive, may they come to Jesus. And again, we'll soon see that though they came enthusiastically, they came for the wrong reasons. Again, seeking a magician to entertain or a physician to heal, not a savior to transform their lives. They wanted to be physically fed and touched, not spiritually transformed. And they followed Jesus for the wrong reason. There's many people today that want to follow Jesus for their own personal agenda. I'm coming to the Lord because I, want, I got something that He needs to do for me. And that's kind of how a lot of these people came. They would come with their, their sick people and they would come, you know, hey, did you hear the magic signs that, that this was traveling rabbi is doing? You've got to come check it out. I saw him heal a leper, man. It was incredible. Really, where is it at? And they go running to see Jesus, but they don't fully understand who He is. Verse 3. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there He sat with His disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus is up on this mountain. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes and in Jesus' shoes. You're weary, you're hungry. You fled with the Lord to a deserted place for a much-needed rest. And then you look up, thinking that finally you're going to rest, and you see a crowd between 15,000 and 20,000 people storming up and pressing in on you. Now, we're going to see that the disciples have some answers of the ways they think that this could be dealt with. And they kind of give the Lord some information. And a lot of it comes from the companion text. I did pull from all four of them because it's in all four places this morning, even though we're looking specifically here. So they're coming towards you, they're pressing in on you, and they're hungry, and they have nothing to, you have nothing to feed them with, and you're in the middle of nowhere. The disciples, I, you know, we don't quote them, but, you know, oh man, can we ever get any peace? You know, Lord, are, they ever, are these people ever going to leave us alone? I mean, Lord, we just want to hang out with you. You know, we don't need them around anymore. I mean, can't they just go home? You know, and you know what? That's how they're going to respond initially. We're going to see four ways that the disciples respond to the people. But then we're going to see the way that the Lord responded. Because it says in Mark that Jesus saw them and He was moved with compassion. He was weary, He was tired, but He was never too weary or tired to minister to people. Never. Jesus loved people. He loved the sheep. He loved those who were coming unto Him. He loved them so much that He'd rather die than live without them. And so when He saw them coming, He was never too weary and never too tired. And just remember that, that the Lord is never too tired to hear from you. You ever prayed before and think, oh Lord, here I come again with the same thing. How many of you guys ever prayed that way before? Lord, you must be tired of hearing from me. He is never too tired to hear from you. He loves you. He loves it so much when you come and just put everything aside and spend time with Abba Father. When you crawl up in his lap and just spend time in his presence and pray, he loves that just as much as I love when my children do that with me. Now, it's interesting that while he, again, was physically exhausted, the word there for move with compassion out of, out of Mark's gospel is to have one's inner being stirred. And it's much stronger than sympathy. And that word is used 12 times in the Bible. I thought this was interesting. Eight times it's in reference to Jesus having compassion. Once when he saw the needy multitude, it said they were lost sheep who had just come from a brutal fleecing. 
and they were torn and wandering and lost. It's in Matthew 9. Twice when he beheld the hungry multitudes without food. Once or twice when he saw the two blind men. And when they cried out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he saw the leper in Mark chapter 1 and said, if you are willing, you can be made clean. And then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. And he said, I am willing to be cleansed. Remember with the leper, I love that story because lepers are, man, they're anathema. Get away from me. Leave me alone. Leprosy was a contagious disease with no cure. You basically died from the outside in. Your body fell apart. You know, your limbs started falling off. It was not pretty. And when a leper walked around, they had to, they had, if they got anywhere near people, which they weren't supposed to do to begin with, they had to cover their faces and shout unclean if a clean person came anywhere near them. And the last thing in the world that ever happened to a leper was somebody touching them. And here this leper, can you imagine being a leper and Jesus comes and not only does he heal him, not only does he speak to him, but he reaches out and he touches him. Maybe the first person to touch him in many, many years. Why? Because he was moved with compassion. And leprosy in the Bible is a typology of what? Sin. And we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and leprosy is contagious. It's something that destroys us. But here's the good news. Jesus reached out and touched us because he was moved with compassion. Amen? That's the God we serve, a God of love and grace, mercy and compassion. He used the word three times in parables and speaking of the king that had compassion on his bankrupt servant, on the good Samaritan who had compassion on the Jewish uh, victim, and on the father who had compassion on the prodigal son. So this crowd comes up and the disciples are like, oh man, won't they ever leave us alone? And the Lord instead looks out and moved with compassion, has a burden and a heart to minister to the crowd. Where should we buy bread that these may eat, he said. Only time that Jesus asked for advice anywhere in the Bible that I can find. But you know what? He's not really asking for advice. Does Jesus need our advice? What do you think? I'm thinking no. Matter of fact, I think he probably had to run away from any of my counsel pretty quick, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a finite man, and I'm going to give finite counsel to the creator of the universe. It's, it, it's dumb. It'd be like, it'd be like a, a, a neurosurgeon going out and asking a two-year-old what he ought to do during surgery right? So what do you think I ought to do? You know, I mean, give me a, I mean, I, the, the, the victim would get, you know, the, the patient would get up and run out of the building as quick as he could, right? So, you, so come here, I'm going to get some counsel from you before I cut this guy's head open. What do you think I ought to, you know, that's not good. And so the Lord doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need us to come and tell him, but he asked them this and we get the answer why in verse six, but this he said to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Do you know that God is sovereign and in control and his actions are never in doubt? Do you know that God always knows what he's going to do and that God does not and cannot change his mind? You know why he can't change his mind? Because he's perfect. If you change your mind, it would have to mean that you were wrong or you made the wrong decision or God doesn't do that because he's perfect God and he's in control and he knows the beginning from the end. Amen? But he said this to test the hearts of the disciples. And he says to them, where, do we, where should we buy bread that these, these may eat? Now, when you look at all four Gospels, there's four solutions given by the disciples. The first one is found in Mark 6. And he says, send them away. Get them out of here. Lose these people. You know what? Ministry would be great if it just wasn't for the stinking people. Right? I've heard people say that. You're at a pastor's conference. Yeah, I really love the ministry. It's just the people that kind of get on my nerves. I'm like, dude, the people are the ministry. Studying your Bible, you know, in your church office is not the ministry, though you need to do that to minister. And, you know, doing all the administrative, ministry is the people. 
And these guys are saying, Lord, we know you've called us you know, to be your 12 apostles, the sent ones by you, the ones you're going to hand the ministry over to when you send to the Father. But get these people out of here. They're getting on our nerves. And so that's their first response is send them away. And you know what? You'll notice that if you look in Mark that Jesus didn't, they didn't ask Jesus. They told him. Let's get rid of these folks. But Jesus would not send them away, and He will never send us away when we come to Him in a time of need. Now, verse 7, we see the second thing that was at, the second response. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. The second solution is, let's raise some money. You know, we got all these people coming, and man, it's, you know, we don't have any food here. We need to go, do like a food drive. You know, Lord, we need, we need to get some kind of program together. But you know what? I'm looking at our bank account, and it looks like it's going to be impossible because even 200 denarii, which is about eight months' wages for the average man in that day, would not even feed all these people who are coming. So there's no way that we can feed them, Lord. And so, uh, you know, we could do a food drive or we could, you know, try to do something. But again, the first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust Him to meet the need. You know what? When you see people doing awesome things for God, they don't wait until all the stuff's in a row. They just say, Lord, you tell me and I'm going. We've got a few people in our church that sold everything they had and moved up here. God bless you guys, you know? And one of them came, didn't know there was a church here. That's good stuff, right? Why? Because God told you to come. There's people that go into the mission field and have no idea how they're going to support themselves. There are people that do, and you know, we sit in day-to-day things, and we want God to lay out the map and give us step 47, and well, Lord, I don't want to put my foot out of the boat until you show me the whole path and everything that's going to happen. But that's not faith. Faith is not seeing and then believing. It's believing and then seeing. Amen? And these guys are like, well, we need to raise some money, but you know, I'm not, and the Lord says, look, don't, don't count the, the, the finances. Don't look at what's in the bank account and try to make that the solution. You know, the world thinks that money is the place that you find most solutions. Isn't that true? I've had people tell me, you know, well, you know, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to support that church over there? You know, you got some backers, you got, you know, no, I don't have any. Who's, who's underwriting the church? Uh, let me think. God? How about that? Creator of the universe on our side. I mean, Alpha and Omega, Cattle on a Thousand Hills. What am I worried about? You know, well, no, you need to raise a support team. And I, I got the ultimate support team. Amen? I mean, when God is for us, who can be against us? If God is leading and guiding, where God guides, God provides. But these guys, again, well, let's throw some money at it. Well, that's not the answer either. Then we get the third response. And one of his disciples, Andrew, verse 8, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are these among so many? So the first response was send them away. The second one was let's raise enough money to somehow feed them. And the third one was that Andrew brought this potential solution, but he, but he really didn't have faith that God could use it. He said, you know, but what is this little bit amongst, you know, 15 to 20,000 people? If you've got 5,000 men, that doesn't count the women and children. So there could have been fifteen to 20,000 people, and a kid walks up with his sack lunch. And the guy says, well, we got this sack lunch over here, but I'm, I'm thinking probably not going to help us out too much, right? I'm thinking, you know, that big guy over there could probably eat the whole thing by himself. And then we're going to do it with the other 15,000, 20,000 people. And so they're looking at it from a physical perspective. And, and again, at least, and praise God for Andrew. I love Andrew, because every time you see him in the Bible, he's bringing people to Jesus. You ever notice that? Andrew just, that's what he does. You gotta love him. He just goes out and grabs people. Why don't you, you need to come see Jesus. And he's bringing, whether it's his brother or whoever he's bringing, he's always just bringing folks to the Lord. And that's a great, you know what? Praise God, we need some more Andrews. Amen? 
You know, we need to just grab some people and bring them to Jesus because that's where the transformation is going to happen. But at the same time, we see his unbelief. And what is his unbelief because of? Because of the circumstances. Because from the world's perspective, what do they see? 20,000 people, we're weary, we're tired, we've got no food, we're out in the middle of nowhere, there's not a 7-Eleven on the corner we can go down and get food from. I mean, there's no Safeway, there's no food, there's no nothing. What are we going to do? Our circumstances are overwhelming, Lord. We're, we're out of luck. There's no answer. How many of you have ever felt that way before in your life? Lord, there's no answer. It's overwhelming. There's nothing we can do. I mean, these circumstances are beyond our... We just pitch it in. There's nothing we can do. Look at the final solution and where it came from. Verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, I like that. Whenever I see, and then Jesus said, it's like, can you imagine disciples? You know, we're going to get some food. Oh, let's send them home. No, we can do that. You know, and they're arguing. And then the Lord just says, make the people sit down. I like that. I like that Jesus just tells them what to do. Now, they have a choice to make here. They can say, yeah, but Lord, what are we going to do? We don't have any food. We don't. Praise God, they're obedient. He says, make them sit down. And when the Lord speaks, we ought to listen. The solution didn't come from the apostles. It didn't come from the money. It didn't come from a plan. It came from Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 10. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those who were sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as as they wanted. I wrote down here some practical steps for solving life's problems from a spiritual perspective. When you have overwhelming circumstances, what should you do? Number one, start with what you have. So often we think we need more. Well, Lord, I, you know, I, I'd love to serve you, but I don't have enough money. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough training. I don't have enough time. Andrew went and found a boy with a sack lunch. Praise God for the little boy with the lunch. Amen? I mean, if there's 20,000 hungry people, you might have been thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, no. I'm, it's my lunch. I, I packed. You, you're bad that you didn't. I'm, I got my lunch. Right? I mean, that's what he could have said, right? But he didn't do that. Praise God that he was willing to give up his lunch. Now, he could have just said from the beginning, oh, that's not going to help. And sometimes we sit back and God wants to use us and we think that we have too little to give, that it's not going to make an impact. But we must start with what we have. And then, secondly, take what we have and give it to Jesus. The problem is not that we don't have enough to give to Jesus. The problem is that we won't let go of what we have. Amen? We don't want to give it to the Lord. No, this is my stuff. That's my car. That's my house. That's my, those are my shoes. Those are my, that's my skateboard. That's my, my, right, everything's mine. No, 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 it's not. It's His. Amen? I'm wearing His shoes this morning. Thank God He lets me borrow them, Okay? You know, praise God that He allows us to, it's all His stuff. And the problem isn't that we have too little to give, it's that we don't want to let go of what we do have. You know, if the boy just said, no, sorry guys, it ain't going to happen, and walked away, praise God He didn't. And God used that little, can you imagine the awe in that little boy's eyes as he watched the Lord feed 20,000 people with his lunch? Can you imagine? And can you imagine the awe that will be in our hearts when we see God take what little we have and we put it into His hands and we watch Him do the miraculous? You take the little that He has given us and we give it back to Him, and in His hands, miracles happen. They don't happen in our hands. They don't happen in our will. Notice, where did all the multiplication happen? It happened in the Lord's hands, and then He gave it to the disciples that they would distribute it. The miracle didn't happen in their hands, it happened in His. And then He put it into their hands. As 
his followers, we are not manufacturers, we're distributors. Amen? He's the one that manufactures it. He's the one that does all of the good work, and then he allows, he works through us in the person of his Holy Spirit. And so when we're going through difficulties of circumstance, we must start with what we have, not look for another, and say, Lord, here's what I have. Lord, I'm putting it all into your hands. Lord, I trust you completely. Lord, these circumstances seem overwhelming to me, but Lord, I know that you can do great things. And you know what? I believe that people most often miss the Lord in their circumstances because they're not looking for him. You know what? Is God in control? Does he know what's going on in your life? Absolutely. And then what happens is we try to fix the problem, especially you guys. You guys are a bunch of fixers, right? That's what I do. You try to fix the problem, and then, you know, we're like, man, I just can't, you know, Lord's not helping. Well, you're not looking for the Lord in your circumstances. You're not realizing that the Lord wants to use it. Who's getting blessed? All the people sitting there, but I believe above all else, the disciples are being taught an incredible lesson. They're being taught, you know what, guys? When it seems overwhelming, you need to trust me. When there is no way, I'm going to make a way because I'm God and I can do that. So Jesus' blessing was one of thanksgiving for God's provision. And it was an example that, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. He broke the bread and he thanked God for it. You know, it's awesome. Here's one of the many places where we see praying for the meal. He took the bread, he broke it, and he blessed it, and then he gave the food to everybody. You might say, why do we pray over dinner? Well, here's one of the many reasons. We pray and we thank God for His provision. As His servants, again, we are the distributors. And I love this verse 12. It says, so when they were all filled, when they were filled, and it says they were all filled in other texts, hunger of every single person was satisfied. And I, went, I wrote down, our deepest hunger can only be satisfied by coming to Jesus. Amen? You know what? Everything else will leave you empty. And I know, uh, you know, example in my own life. It's interesting how God will use circumstances and trials. When I was about 10 years old, I'd been playing football since I was 7. Maybe I was 12 years old. And they had this thing where once you got to a certain age, they took like three teams and put them all together. And went from 40 kids on each team to 120 kids going out for a team with 40 kids. And I happened to be, hard to imagine now, but I was like the littlest kid there. I grew late, okay? And so I'm going out for popcorn, and my parents were telling me, son, you just need to quit, because it ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? They're trying to be nice. My dad offered to get season tickets to the Rams and stuff. But they go out there, and they got these kids. They got these kids that are weighing like 140 pounds, and I weighed 77. I'll never forget. I went into the weigh-in. You know, the guy's like moving the weight down. I weighed 77 pounds. These guys went 135, 140 pounds. And my parents kept trying to get me to quit. And I just said, you know what? I've been playing since I was little. I'm just going to keep trying. And I can honestly tell you that I, as a 12-year-old, was praying every day. And I was totally ready if the Lord didn't want me to play football. But I can honestly tell you, and this will sound weird to you guys, but for a 12-year-old, it was huge. I knew the Lord was with me on the field because it was unbelievable how God blessed me. And then when they had the cuts, you bring your, you bring your, your bags. And you're supposed to, if you got, didn't make the team, you're supposed to take your bag and throw it into this dumpster. And so we all show up with our bags, and if you didn't, you're supposed to go home and, and then come back for practice. And so all these guys are coming, looking at the list, and they're throwing their bags in a dumpster, and all these guys are crying and going home. And my, my mom's waiting out by the station wagon going, oh, this is not going to be good. And I come walking back, and I got the bag over my shoulder. I looked, and I saw my name on the list, and I went to the coach to make sure it wasn't a mistake, because you know, I was like the mascot. I was so little. I, I'm, I'm on the, and, he, and I go back, and my mom, I thought you were supposed to leave the bag. You know, and I... 
you know, I made the team, you know. And, and here's the thing. In my life, it's interesting because that circumstance in my life was huge as a 12-year-old. That was just like the world to me. But I saw God's hand, and God really ministered to me during that. But here, you fast forward 10 years later, and I'm 21 years old, and I'm playing college football, and I spent an entire year, the year before I got hurt, I spent an entire year getting ready. But this time, I'm not as reliant upon God. I'm just totally into football. And football become way too important to Dave. And I finally got to the point now, and I'm, I, I have to confess, I'm taking steroids. I mean, everything that's not nailed to the floor. I mean, it's just, it's way too important to me. And I go out there, and I finally achieve this goal I've been striving for, and I beat out eight other guys. I'm going to be the starting position, you know, tight end and all this stuff. And I go out in our first scrimmage. I get hurt again, and I'm out for the season. And this time, it was God's way of using my circumstances to let me know, you know what, that's too important to you, Dave. And so sometimes our circumstances, as we're relying upon God, we get to see God do great things. And then other times in our circumstances, we start relying upon ourselves. God takes those things away. But here's the blessing is, I have to confess to you, I was not happy. Rick Siegel was with me when I went to turn in my equipment. It was not good. I got all my stuff and I just threw it in the floor in the, the trainer's room. I mean, I've been working out for two years, right? I've been living in the weight room and it's all over in one afternoon. Game over. You're out for 12 weeks. Oh, I wasn't happy. So I threw everything in there. And what's interesting, though, is if I had not had to quit playing football, a couple weeks later, I went back to work, and that's where I met my wife. And so, you know, sometimes we look at our circumstances, and, you know, we can watch God move and overcome great things when you're the 77-pound kid trying to make the football team, when everybody weighs twice as much as you do, and God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And it wasn't about the football team. That was irrelevant. It was just God showing me, Dave, I can do great things if I want to. Just trust me. But then we can see how we can make things more important in our lives than him, and God will just snatch them away. Why? Because we allow our circumstances to be overwhelming or we uh, try to trust in ourselves in the midst of our difficulties. Our God is faithful. We need to turn to Him and trust in Him in difficult circumstances, not trust in our own ability. Or you might end up throwing all your football equipment in the middle of the equipment manager's room. Because you know what? Without Him, I can do nothing. And God showed me that He needed to be the priority. Our deepest hunger can only be satisfied by coming to Jesus. Not by being first string on the football team. Not by having a thriving business. Not by having, you know, X number of children or the big house on the hill. You're going to find that those things will not satisfy in and of themselves. God may give you those things, but the satisfaction will come from your relationship with Him. Verse 13. Therefore they gathered... So that when they were all filled, he said in the second half of 12, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves which they left over by those who had eaten. It's interesting, not only were they filled, but 12 baskets were left over. How many disciples were there? 12. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12. I believe that this is God's way of ministering directly to the disciples to say, look, you thought the circumstances were impossible. Not only am I going to feed them, but I'm going to show you that I can continue to provide exceedingly abundantly all you ask, above all you ask or think. Here's an entire basket of food for each one of you guys left over from one kid's lunch after feeding all these thousands of people. That's our God. To show them that he was sufficient and that he is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. And he provides for all of our needs. Some have even said that it, it may have point to the 12 tribes of Israel that there's enough spiritual food to satisfy them all as well. Then those men who had seen the sign, verse 14, 
that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Remember this, you guys. True miracles will always glorify the Lord. Amen? If someone tells you about some miracle that they say happened and God's not glorified in it, sorry. That's not the Lord. Amen? Every true miracle will glorify God. He doesn't do miracles to glorify men because men don't need to be glorified. We need to die to ourselves. Amen? And so often you hear about these guys, all this miracle happened or such and such happened, and it's contrary to Scripture. So-and-so went up into heaven, and this happened up in heaven, then he came to, oh, no, he didn't, because the Bible says he couldn't have gone and come back. Sorry. And too often what happens is we start talking about the miraculous, and we, we stir up feelings. Just remember, true miracles will glorify and honor only Jesus Christ, not man. So the next day we're going to see that after this feeding of the 5,000, that he goes, he's going to head up to Capernaum. And as he's heading up there, he's going to give a sermon on the bread of life. And it's interesting that the people are willing to receive the physical bread, but when he tells them, as we'll see next week, about the bread of life, they don't want to hear it. And people make the same mistake today. You know, that that men waste their time, the Bible says in Isaiah, men waste their time and money on that which is not bread. But the good news is that Jesus still has compassion and still reaches out to those. A hungry world is feeding on empty substitutes, but what they need, as we'll see next week, is the bread of life. So in closing on that section, unbelief due to circumstances, start with what you have. Give it to the Lord. Don't wait until you have more. Give what you have to Jesus and then obey his command. Because remember what they did? He said, tell them to sit down. He said, okay. They all sat down. A few more verses here. Look at verse uh, 15. Jesus walking on the water. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. It's interesting that we're going to go from... struggling and unbelief and God growing them through their circumstances to unbelief and God growing them in the midst of a trial. Trials are great things, you guys. I know we don't really love them, but we already count it all joy when we fall into various trials because trials is the way God draws us closer to him. And so what happens here is the people come to him and they want to make him king. And what does our Lord do when they wanted to make him king? Jesus knew their motives were not spiritual and their purposes were outside of his will. They wanted to make a physical king, not a spiritual one. And so he departed from there. Now he's going to command in the other text to put the disciples in a boat so they'll get out of there. And why does he tell them to leave? Let me tell you why. Because if they had stayed, when the people came down and wanting to make him king, they might have said, that sounds like a good program. I think Judas would have been all over it. Hey, you know what? We want to make Jesus king. We want to have him rule and reign over all of Rome. And who would be the treasurer in that kingdom anyway? Judas would be like, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'm walking around here. I ain't got any money for bread. I'd be like the treasurer of Rome. Hey. And, you know, Peter would be like, yeah, I'll be the prime minister. You know, I mean, these guys might have started mapping out some plans. The Lord said, you know what, guys? We need to get you away from this. So he, he put them in the other text. You see that he urged them to get into the boat. Look at verse 16. Now, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and they got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So this is a picture of what Jesus is doing here, and, and if you look in Mark's text, they get into the boat, and they start going out, and, and we're just a few minutes away from being down here. They're going out, and they get into the middle of that sea, and we know that the text says in Mark that Jesus is sitting up on a mountain, and he's looking out, and he's watching them out in the middle of that sea as they're paddling frantically trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's interesting, about two months ago or so when I was in Israel with my dad, we were going across the Sea of Galilee, and we were in a motorized boat. It's an old-looking boat, but it had a motor on it. And we're out in the middle, 
And we stopped there, and he was teaching on Jesus walking on the water. And we're looking out at Capernaum, and we're looking out at the place that they had come from where Jesus fed the 5,000, and we're right out in the middle, probably right about where they were, and you look up, and there's a mountain right there, and that's where Jesus would have been sitting, looking out and watching them, sitting out in the middle of that lake. And it's interesting that during the time we were there, that the guy said, you know, you better hurry up and finish your teaching. He said, because in a few more minutes, the wind's going to get so strong that we won't even be able to make it across. We'll have to turn and go back. Now, it's interesting, that was a motorized boat. So this, the winds on the Sea of Galilee have not changed. And these guys are out there. Can you imagine 12 guys in a boat trying to paddle? Now, last time they were going through a storm, the Lord was with them, and he was sleeping, and they didn't have their eyes on him, and they started to panic. This time, they're all by themselves, and the Lord is up on the mountain looking out at them. Now, that's a picture of what the Lord is doing for us today. What is Jesus doing right now? What's he doing? He's interceding on our behalf, which means he's praying for us. And he's up on the mountain, he looks out and he sees them, and they're battling and they're struggling, and he's praying for them. And they're striving in their own ability to get to the other side. Now, it's awesome to think that even before the trial comes our way, that Jesus is praying for us. And remember when you go through a trial, that sometimes, and most often when it comes to trials, or virtually every trial, it's not because of disobedience. It's because of obedience. Are they, did they do what God told them to do by getting in the boat? Yes. Jesus said, get in the boat. Okay, and they got in the boat. They started paddling, and the storm came. Wait a minute. He sent them into a storm on purpose? Yes. He sent them. He's not only the one who saves us from the storm, he's the sender of the storm. And so remember, next time you're going through a trial, man, that doesn't sound very, very nice, does it, right? But the Lord sent it, so that we might be conformed more to His image. When we go through that difficulty, remember that God sent it to get us to look to Him. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? Of course. Did He deliberately direct them into the storm? Absolutely. But they were safer in the storm and the will of God than being with those people. And it's interesting to me that He sent them away from those people. So there's two kinds of storms in the Bible. Storms of correction and storms of perfection. Who, somebody named somebody who went through a storm of um, correction. Jonah. Think that's a storm of correction? Lord said, go to Nineveh. No, I'm going this way. Nineveh, no, I ain't going. I don't care. I'm not going. So what happens? He gets on the boat. Storm starts kicking up. And they start throwing everything overboard. And finally, Jonah comes up and goes, it's me. The reason there's a storm, it's me. And they throw him out. The fish swallows him. And now he's inside the belly of a fish for three days. Can you imagine what that smelled like? And then, you know, I mean, you can imagine just, uh, you know, his skin being torn away and his hair fried off from the acid inside the stomach. And then he gets burped, belched up in Nineveh, where God told him to go to begin with. Now, he could have gone there and been looking sweet, right? Could have gone there all dressed up in his duds, right? Hair nice. Instead, he gets belched up. He's got no, his skin's all burnt off. His eyebrows are gone. His hair's fried. And he smells like a dead fish. I'm thinking going God's way is probably a little easier. Amen? I mean, you can either, there's storms of correction and there's storms of perfection. And that was a storm of correction. This is a storm of perfection. These guys are in the center of God's will. They're doing exactly what God told them to do. And the storm came anyway. Why? Because God wants them to trust in Him. Verse 18, three more verses here. And he says there, then the sea arose and became a great, and a great wind was blowing. So this storm kicks up and the, and the boat's out in the middle and they're having this difficult struggle and they're paddling away. Verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat and they were excited. Oh, they said, praise the Lord and started singing praise songs. No, they were afraid. 
You know why they were afraid? Because they were paddling out in the middle of that sea, and they were not looking for Jesus. If they had been looking for Jesus to come in that trial, when they saw him, they would have said, praise the Lord, he's here. Instead, they saw him, and they went, oh, there's someone walking on the water. They weren't looking. They were paddling. They were rowing. Now, we know that it says in Mark's account that they paddled until the third, till middle of the night, between 3 and 5 a.m. So they've been out there all night paddling, and it's almost 5 in the morning, and they're out there still paddling, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And I love that. So in our difficulty, remember that God brought me into this trial. Remember that Jesus sees me and is praying for me, but also that Jesus will come to you. He's going to come to us in the midst of our difficulty to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to direct us. After they had fought a long time, Jesus came. And often we feel like Jesus has deserted us. We go through hard times, but remember, Jesus will always come to us in the storms of life. It says in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Daniel in the lion's den, was the Lord with him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They threw him in a fire and had to call to get him to come out. These guys are in a fire. Heated up seven times hotter. I don't know how hot fire has to be to burn you anyway, but heated up seven times hotter, right? They throw them in, and they're in there chilling with Jesus. The Bible says there's a fourth one in there in the likeness of the Son of God, and the guy who said, you know, who is the God that will come against me? I defy, you know, and he throws them in the, and then they come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. They get great testimony. These guys went through the fire, and he saw them in the fire, and then he believed in their God. Do you know that God does that with us? People are watching you when you go through difficulty. And when you go through difficulty, that is the greatest opportunity, I believe, to be a witness to having peace in Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? And so the storms come, God brings them that he might be glorified. It's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. Now, why did Jesus walk on water? Why does he come to them on water? He could have done anything he wanted. Here's what I believe. I believe that the reason Jesus walked on the water was to show the disciples that the very thing they feared was a staircase for Jesus to come to them. What were they afraid of? The water, the waves, the storm. And what did he come to them on? The storm. The very thing that's scaring you to death, the very thing that petrifies your life, the very thing that's causing you so much heartache is the very thing that God wants to use to come to you. Some examples. You found out you got cancer. You're blown away. You don't know what to do. God wants to use that as a, to come to you. You've got sick children. Your finances are a mess. You've lost your job. Your relationship's struggling. There's been a death in your family. That's, that's extremely difficult. That's as hard as it gets. Do you know God wants to use that to come to you? He wants to use that as a way to come and minister to your heart. And I know several people here today that You've had deaths in your family or been diagnosed with cancer or you've had struggles with your finances and God has used that to come and minister to you. It looks like the most horrific event and then in the end you see God's hand all over it. That's what trials are. The apostles had a lot of growing to do and the reason they didn't recognize Jesus, they were not looking for him in their trials. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I as I am. Where do we see that? I am. Burning bush. What's your name? I am. I am that I am. This is God. He's proclaiming himself to be God once again. He says, do not be afraid. When we're walking in the fullness of him, we have nothing to fear. There is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fear and anxiety and worry are the opposite of faith. When you know the Lord, you have nothing to be afraid of. Last verse, verse 21. 
Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now, it's interesting that we know prior to this, when you look at the other gospel accounts, that Peter got out of the boat and walked to Jesus. And a lot of times people make fun of Peter because he sank. But you know what? Praise God that Peter got out of the boat. Amen? And he was walking on the water for a minute, right? I mean, he got out, he was walking, and then he started to see the storm, and, uh, and he went straight down, right? And the Lord had to pull him out. But you know what? I believe the Lord wants us to get out of the boat. Amen? And say, Lord, I trust you. My eyes are on you. He, he stayed walking on water as long as his eyes were on Jesus. But when he put his eyes on the storm, it was too overwhelming, and he started to sink. But I love this part of the text in this last verse, that it, when they received Jesus in the boat, they were immediately where they were going. As soon as he came in, the storm ceased. Everything changed. They stopped, when they stopped trying to do it and toil and fight in their own ability, when they just put Jesus in the boat, then they were exactly where they were supposed to be. When Jesus shows up, we can let Him in the boat, but we must be looking for Him. Or we can continue to paddle and attempt to get there on our own. The worship team will come on up. If we don't learn this lesson, guess what? I believe this to be true. God will bring storms into our life, and there's a lesson He wants to teach us, And I believe that if we don't learn it in that storm, there's another storm coming. And I'm not saying that to, oh, boy, I better learn it so I don't get... No, that's what I'm talking about. I believe that God brings the storms because He loves us. He loves us so much, He wants us to get our eyes off of playing college football and get our eyes on Him. He wants us to get our eyes off anything else that we're putting before Him, and He'll bring yet another storm and another storm until we will finally stop and realize that we've got to trust in Him and Him alone. So in closing, we, are either, we will either grow in the midst of trials or we will faithful, faithlessly grumble throughout them, through our trials and our difficult circumstances. Or we can look for Him in the midst of the storm and have peace knowing that God's in control. I want to encourage you guys. How many of you guys, you don't have to say what it is, how many of you guys are going through a difficult time of some kind right now? Raise your hand. Look around the room. Half the hands are up. As Christians, I believe this. You're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go into a trial. Amen? But God is using that to conform you more to His image, to get your eyes back on Him, to get you to stop paddling the boat and to set your mind on things above and to trust Him and to know that He's a faithful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the trials that You put us through in life. And Lord, I thank You, Lord, for many who are here today who I've, I've spoken with, and I know the difficulties they've been through, but Lord, I know that you've used them in their life, and Lord, you've used them in my life to get my eyes off of this world and get my eyes on you. And Lord, there's no better place that they can be. And Father, I just pray, Lord, as the trials and difficulties come, that we will be looking for you in the midst of it. We'll be looking for your hand and your perfect will. So Lord, I just pray that you would go out with us uh, this afternoon, Father God, and may we just be looking for you in our circumstances of life and the trials that come, trusting and knowing you're a faithful God and that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.